Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. A new speaker nominee drops out hours later. What happened with GOP whip Tom Emmer? And what Republicans are planning now back at square one? An 85-year-old former hostage shares her frightening experiences while in Hamas captivity. And a recorded phone call is released reportedly of a Hamas terrorist celebrating the killing of innocent civilians. The White House warning against a potential ceasefire in Gaza. What Israel's vowing to do next and what the Biden administration says about evacuating U.S. citizens. Former President Trump calls his ex-attorney a proven liar. Michael Cohen takes the stand in the civil fraud case against the former president, saying he made up numbers. A former lawyer for former President Trump, Jenna Ellis, pleads guilty to a criminal charge of making false statements in the Georgia RICO case. And attorneys general from over 30 states come together against Meta, accusing the tech giant of deliberately harming children's mental health. House Republicans spent all day to choose their third speaker nominee, current GOP whip Tom Emmer, but it's looking like this was the shortest run of all. NTD's Melina Weiskup joins us live from Capitol Hill with updates. Melina, tell us more about what's happening with Emmer. Good evening, Tiff. You're exactly right. This was the shortest lifespan of a speaker nominee that we've seen during this entire three-week search when Republicans are trying to find their next speaker. Now, Tom Emmer, after emerging from that, uh, you know, the eight candidates that he was vying against earlier today, just hours after he won that nomination, he dropped out. And this comes after not only upwards of 20 members were adamantly opposing him, saying that they would never vote for him on the House floor, but interestingly enough, it also comes just after former President Trump launched some harsh criticism against Emmer. We'll read you exactly what the former president had to say. He wrote on Truth Social, voting for a globalist rhino like Tom Emmer would be a tragic mistake. Now keep in mind, this is also after Tom Emmer called former President Trump earlier this week, trying to garner some support from him. Obviously, that did not work, and it went instead the opposite direction. Now, also interestingly enough, the former president saw this as so important to squash Tom Emmer's chances that he even took time out of um, a press gaggle that he was having during a break at his uh, court appearance today to comment on it. We'll show you what the former president had to say, along with what members were telling me today about the possibility of an Emmer as speaker. Take a look. Tom Emmer, it looks like he's finished. Looks like he's finished. He was not a supporter. He was a rhino. And it looks like he's finished, but we'll see. I can't go along with putting one of the most moderate members of the entire Republican conference in the Speaker's chair. That, that betrays the conservative values that I came here to fight for. When, when people cease to come together as a majority, it's frustrating. Because you, you can always find something then. I mean, if 98% uh, of the time you agree, that's a lot. So hopefully people can see it that way rather than the one or two percent. Now, we did see some strong opposition before Trump launched that criticism. Members saying that they were just unhappy with Emmer's previous voting record. He voted for things such as codifying same-sex marriage. He supports Ukraine aid. These are all things that the most conservative wing of the Republican Party just aren't willing to support. But, Tiff, it was surprising how quickly Emmer did drop out. And Melina, with that said, where does that leave us as far as the House seating a speaker at some point this week? 
Well, we're back to the drawing board. Republicans are once again right now back behind closed doors where they've spent the majority of their time over the past three weeks trying to figure all of this out. They're trying to choose another candidate right now. They're hearing from potential candidates, actually. I'll read you the list of those who have thrown their hat in the ring so far. So we did see some return candidates, such as Byron Donald of Florida, a new congressman, as well as Kevin Hearn. He also um, you know, ran last time. There was also Mike Johnson, who's the vice chair of the Republican conference and then you have some new names like the chairman of the Homeland Security Committee that is uh, Mark Green and then you have Chuck Fleshman and uh, Roger Williams so there are also some unknown names here so they're back to square one they're gonna choose from these candidates once again behind closed doors and then hopefully move on to a floor vote at some point this week one positive thing about Emmer dropping out so quickly is the fact that they, we aren't going to have to wait multiple floor rounds before we see whether or not Emmer could have gotten the votes. Instead, Republicans are just going to quickly move on to someone else. Tiff? Melina, thank you for that update. Would House Republicans work with Democrats for the speakership to dive deeper into the ever-fluctuating situation? We spoke with Lawrence Wilson, a political reporter with the Epic Times. Lawrence Wilson, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be back on the show. My pleasure. Zooming in on the latest in this speaker race, the latest Republican to run for speaker, Tom Emmer, has dropped out just a few hours after his nomination. What happened here? Yeah, his nomination was in trouble right from the very start. Now, it was a uh, seven-person race. Nine people entered. Two of them dropped out very early. And so seven people entered that race this morning. And after five ballots, not really unusual with that many people in the race, Emmer came out on top, uh, but he asked for a second confirming vote by voice. So members were put on the record exactly where they are. And 20 GOP members said they would, they voted for someone else, indicating they wouldn't back his nomination. Five voted present and three were absent. So at least 25 were saying no we're not gonna support Tom Emmer. He spent some time trying to win their support, but that was unsuccessful. So yeah, within just a few hours, he withdrew himself from the race. And on top of that, former President Trump came out quite strongly against Emmer, at least on Truth Social. Do you see that as a factor here? Well, it wasn't a factor in the original vote because that was taken before President Trump uh, posted those remarks on Truth Social. But I have to tell you that having the former president call you a rhino globalist is not gonna go over very well uh, in this Congress. So I, that may have hardened some opposition to him. It seemed to be that people, uh, a certain group that believed that he was just not conservative enough for their taste, that centered on two votes. One was that Emmer voted to certify the results of the 2020 election. And another was that he voted in favor of the Respect for Marriage Act, which codified uh, rights for same-sex couples. So some were saying, he's just too moderate for us. We want someone who's more conservative. And expanding on that note about people viewing him as too moderate, what is the mood like among Republicans right now? Well, if you had asked me that this morning, I would have 
told you, it was very optimistic. Uh, there was a lot of good energy as members went into that conference this morning. They had a good meeting last night where people said there was a much better mood in the room. People were more cooperative. Uh, seemed like they wanted to really come together and find a candidate and get this done. Uh, now it seems to be a little bit back to the two sides really dug in and a lot of people in the middle saying, look, there are a lot of people here who can lead us. We just need to pick one. But then you have some on the very far right and some who are more on the moderate side who are fighting over who that will be. So a lot of frustration among that group right now. And has there been any more talk about empowering the Speaker Pro Temp, Patrick McHenry, or even working with the Democrats? Not really up to this point. Now, I think the Republicans are still saying they're intent on working through this. Some of them say this is just democracy in action. It's kind of messy uh, getting a bunch of people to come to an agreement. Uh, but, you know, I have heard a couple of people, maybe it was just a slip when they were asked about working with Democrats. They said, no, not yet. Uh, may have been just a, a phrase, but I wonder if it indicated some willingness. Others have told us no. Uh, Democrats just are not going to be reliable partners. Remember, 208 Democrats voted to oust former Speaker McCarthy, and uh, they just don't feel like they can trust the Democrats at this point. Lawrence Wilson, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Disturbing news emerges from the war between Israel and Hamas terrorists. An 85-year-old former hostage shares her frightening experience and a recorded phone call from a Hamas terrorist celebrating with his family about killing innocent civilians. NTD's Jason Perry has the update and a warning. This report contains footage that some viewers may find disturbing. One of the two hostages released by Hamas terrorists on Monday met with reporters on Tuesday. To tell you the truth, I've been through hell. On the way when I was lying on the motorbike, I was lying on my side with my legs here and my body there. So the guys hit me with sticks on the way. She then described what happened after they reached the Hamas tunnels, a complex underground network which has been used to facilitate acts of terrorism. From there, we walked for miles under the ground, on moist ground. It looked like a spider web, many, many tunnels. We reached a hall where we gathered, some 25 people. We had guards and a paramedic with us. A doctor also came, and he made sure that we were given some pills, more or less, medical pills. Family members of the other 200-plus hostages are still experiencing deep emotional pain. We are doing everything, everything to bring you back. And to make matters worse, she saw a video of her son published by Hamas terrorists. When I saw the video clip, I saw his face. He covered himself, but he was looking frightened, frightened. The Hamas-run health ministry reports that over 5,700 Palestinians have been killed in the war so far. The conflict began after Hamas terrorists killed approximately 1,400 Israelis, most of whom were attending a music festival. So what's going through the minds of the Hamas terrorists, and how could people commit such gruesome acts on innocent civilians? Apparently, some terrorists think killing innocent people makes them heroes. 
On Tuesday, the Israeli Defense Forces released what they describe as a recorded conversation between a Hamas terrorist and his family members. This phone call was also played on Tuesday at the United Nations Security Council. Secretary of State Antony Blinken also addressed the Security Council and gave this warning, which comes after 13 different attacks on U.S. troops in the Middle East in the past week, according to the Pentagon. The United States does not seek conflict with Iran. We do not want this war to widen. But if Iran or its proxies attack U.S. personnel anywhere, make no mistake, we will defend our people, we will defend our security, swiftly and decisively. The war between Israel and Hamas continues to draw attention from other countries. On Tuesday, French President Emmanuel Macron met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Macron suggested that the international coalition currently fighting against ISIS terrorists should fight against Hamas terrorists as well. Jason Perry, NTD News. What happens if there's a ceasefire in Gaza? The White House today weighing in as it eyes contingency plans for American citizens in the Middle East. Joining us now live is NTD's White House correspondent, Iris Tao. Good evening, Iris. What is the White House's current stance as some protesters in the U.S. call for a ceasefire? Good evening to you, Tiv. In addition to some protest here, protesters here in the U.S., the U.N. Secretary General today also called for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. But a White House today made his point clear that while there will be casualties in this war, a ceasefire right now will only benefit Hamas. Watch. A ceasefire right now really only benefits Hamas. This is war. It is combat. It is bloody. It is ugly. And it's going to be messy. And innocent civilians are going to be hurt going forward. I wish I could tell you something different. I wish that that wasn't going to happen. Uh, but it is, it is going to happen. But a White House says that a humanitarian pause, which is different from a general ceasefire, should be considered to let more aid get into Gaza, a process that President Biden said today that was not fast enough. Meanwhile, the administration confirmed today that there now have been 33 Americans killed by Hamas, up from 32, and that there are now 10 Americans who are still missing, with an unidentified number of them who are still believed to have been taken hostage by Hamas. Tiff. And Iris, what about the American citizens still there? Israel said today that its military is now facing the next stage in the war and attacks on U.S. troops are happening in other parts of the Middle East. How is the administration assisting American citizens in Israel and the Middle East? So there are now definitely mounting concerns over if this conflict could escalate, if not spread to surrounding regions as actors, for example, like Iran, could try to get involved to widen this war. The White House today, while saying that there haven't been any active efforts to try to get Americans evacuated from the Middle East, it does say that it's part of its prudent contingency planning. Watch. There's no active efforts. And we're not parking ships off the coast and getting ready to send Marines in to get people out of. Given everything that's been going on the last two weeks, it would be irresponsible if we weren't taking pen to paper and taking a look at what that might look like. 
The White House today also noted that it has been organizing charter flights for Americans who want to leave Israel to leave. However, it says the demand there hasn't been very high. Tiff. Iris, thank you for that update. Meta is being sued for allegedly harming children's mental health. Today, attorneys general from over 30 states came together against the tech company. Here's New York's attorney general speaking on the issue. Social media is fueling a national youth mental health crisis. Children, and in particular young girls, are struggling with record levels of depression and anxiety. Studies in Facebook's own internal documents show that social media is part of the problem. Meta owns Facebook and Instagram. The lawsuit alleges that the company knowingly designed harmful features on the platforms to addict children and teens. The lawsuit also accuses Meta of collecting data on children under 13 without informing parents or obtaining parental consent. This would violate federal law. Nine attorneys general are also filing lawsuits in their respective states. This brings the number of involved states to over 40. Coming up, former President Trump's one-time special counsel gives damaging testimony against his former boss, what Michael Cohen said in the New York civil fraud case. A former lawyer for Trump, Jenna Ellis, pleads guilty to a criminal charge of making false statements in the Georgia Rico case. And eight children were found nearly 2,000 miles from home. Police say their biological mother abducted the kids after losing custody. More in just a moment. Welcome back. Former President Trump is accused of increasing his assets based on arbitrary numbers. His ex-attorney Michael Cohen attested to that during his testimony today. This in the New York civil fraud case against Trump and his two adult sons. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards heard more of the testimony. Before entering a packed New York courtroom Tuesday, ex-attorney Michael Cohen and former President Trump gave these comments to reporters. He's a proven liar, as you know, he's a felon, serves a lot of time for lying, and we're going to just go in and see, and I think you'll see that you're suffering. And as far as my credibility, I don't know how many times I've said it. I'm actually glad that I have the press here today. My credibility should not be in question. In the courtroom, Trump calmly took notes and occasionally spoke to his attorney as Cohen revealed the inner workings of the Trump organization. Cohen testified before Congress in 2019 that Trump inflated his wealth. It is believed this testimony sparked the investigation into Trump's finances. On the stand Tuesday, he said that he worked as Trump's special counsel and that part of his job involved business development. One of his duties was to work with the chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg. He said the two of them were tasked with increasing the total assets based on a number the former president arbitrarily elected. He specified that the number was whatever number Mr. Trump told us, and that if Trump didn't think the valuations were high enough, they had to keep working on the assets until they achieved the number. Other testimony involved specific details about how they crunched the numbers. Trump's attorneys objected to some of the testimony, but the presiding judge often overruled their objections. This case, by any other judge, this case would have been over a long time ago. We did nothing wrong, and that's the proof. 
In other testimony Tuesday, the state called William Kelly to the stand. Kelly is special counsel at Mazar's accounting firm, the firm that reviewed the Trump Organization's financial statements for 30 years. They found no discrepancies. There was nothing wrong with he testified that the firm discontinued its services after they met with Attorney General Letitia James. She told them Trump's CFO could not be trusted to provide accurate numbers. He then advised the firm to end the relationship because he was concerned that the Attorney General would sue them. Kelly also testified that the firm's review of all financial statements followed applicable accounting standards. A one-time lawyer for former President Trump is pleading guilty to a criminal charge in Georgia. Jenna Ellis said that when representing Trump, she relied on information provided by other lawyers, but didn't fact-check it. Take a look. In the wake of the 2020 presidential election, I believed that challenging the results on behalf of President Trump should be pursued in a just and legal way. I endeavored to represent my client to the best of my ability. If I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post-election challenges. I look back on this whole experience with deep remorse. Prosecutors say one of the lawyers she worked with at the time was former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani. The terms of her plea agreement include five years probation, 100 hours of community service, paying $5,000 in restitution, writing a letter of apology, and cooperating with prosecutors. Ellis is the fourth co-defendant to take a plea deal in the Georgia election case. How is Ellis's guilty plea going to impact former President Trump? And what happens to attorney-client privilege when a lawyer agrees to testify against a former client? A former Brooklyn DA and retired FBI agent tells us he expects things to get pretty complicated in the Georgia case. Mark Ruskin, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Great to be here, Tiffany. To begin, Jenna Ellis has pleaded guilty today, the fourth in a Georgia RICO case. She was one of Trump's former lawyers. How does her guilty plea impact Trump's case? Well, it depends from which point of view you're talking about. From the prosecutor's point of view, the impact is a favorable one in that it strengthens their case. You know, from the defense point of view, from uh, President Trump's point of view, it makes it a little more complicated because now you have one of his legal team, you know, someone who ordinarily would be protected by privileged conversations, now not being able to uh, to uh, assert the privilege and thus being able to uh, uh, be accessed to testify against uh, President Trump. And on that note, could we actually see Jenna Ellis revealing information about Trump, or is that protected under the attorney-client privileges? Well, that's a, uh, an excellent question, and it really gets into some pretty complicated areas of, of law in terms of dealing with what the scope of the privilege is. And I'm not sure that there's an exact answer to that, and it may vary from state to state, because you remember this case is being tried in a state court, not in a federal court. But I would suspect that in a situation like this, that there is no longer an attorney-client privilege that can be asserted uh, in order to, uh, to protect uh, President Trump and other defendants in this case. Although the issue may end up being litigated 
uh, and end up being appealed uh, at some point. Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbro also pleaded guilty and agreed to cooperate. How damaging would these guilty pleas be to Trump if they do turn on him? Well, it depends on the quality of the uh, testimony that's presented by the individuals who have pled guilty in cooperation, uh, agree with cooperation agreements. Now, in this type of situation, the defendant, once they pled guilty, has a very strong incentive to please the, uh, the, the prosecutors who have entered into the agreement with them and also the, the judge, if the judge has some bias. So they're, go they're incentivized by the desire not to go to jail uh, to uh, provide a testimony which is going to please uh, the uh, prosecuting authorities here. Uh, this uh, type of deal, a negotiated plea agreement, uh, the outcome depends on satisfying the terms of the deal. So if the, if the uh, if Alice, you know, who's pled guilty and, and others don't satisfy the, uh, the requirements, then they could end up being sentenced to prison. And then now they've pled guilty. So it could be a, a very melancholy uh, situation for them. And now, zooming in on Ellis's plea, she said, quote, if I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post-election challenges. Jenna Ellis is a lawyer. What do you make of why she would turn around, as it were, and plead guilty? Well, you know, probably because she's facing some serious jail time. You know, whether, you know, what she knows now, you know, ironically, what that probably means is if she knew that she'd end up in so much trouble, that she would not have uh, gotten involved with the case. The uh, you know one thing which I would you know like to mention is this will have a, a really chilling effect on uh, attorneys representing uh, controversial figures in the future because how, you know who's going to want to work for a controversial figure as an attorney if they're facing potential prosecution for having represented. Uh, someone in a, essentially a le legitimate uh, format. Uh, so th that's a, uh, it really can have a, a unfortunate a chilling effect on the operation of uh, justice here. And Mark, given this latest development, what do you see as Trump's defense in this case? Well, in the situation, for example, with Ellis here, you know, the charge is knowingly uh, made false statement, yet she herself in her plea is saying that she did not know. Uh, so what is what is being argued and that she was acted in reckless disregard of whether or not the facts were true. Uh, the uh, If there's a domino effect and other defendants plead uh, guilty, then it's gonna complicate the case for Trump's attorneys you know, ultimately, the result may still be the same, but it's going to be harder to get to that result. And it, it's going to make it uh, more complex, that's for sure. Mark Ruskin, thank you so much for your time. Staying in Georgia, most abortions after six weeks remain illegal there. The state Supreme Court today upholding a state law that's been on pause for over a year. 
The law bans abortions when there is a detectable heartbeat, usually around six weeks. It includes exceptions for the life of or health of the mother, rape, and incest. It became law in 2019, but couldn't be enforced until Roe v. Wade was overturned last year. At that time, abortion providers in Georgia challenged the ban at the state Supreme Court. In its 6-1 to one opinion, the court has now found that the law can be enforced. Georgia's Attorney General commented on the ruling, saying he's pleased by the decision. Meanwhile, an abortion activist commented, saying Georgians are suffering without access to abortions. Eight children who were abducted in Arkansas found all the way in California. Police say they arrested the mother, accusing her of abducting them from foster placements. NTD's David Lamb reports. According to Anderson Police, a concerned citizen contacted dispatchers in Shasta County after seeing six children with a woman who displayed, quote, bizarre behavior around midnight Saturday. Officers arrived at the parking lot of a restaurant and found 36-year-old Trista Fullerton associated with an Arkansas-plated pickup truck. Officers arrested Fullerton on her arrest warrant for abducting eight of her children. And through interviewing the mother, they learned the other two children were at a nearby residence. Police say Fullerton is the biological mother of all eight, but lost custodial rights and took them from foster placements. Although not confirmed how the kids were transported, Arkansas to Shasta County is roughly a 2,000-mile drive. The children were released to Children and Family Services to reunite with their family and guardians in Arkansas. David Lamb, NTD News, California. Coming up, a new weapon for Israel. The IDF has posted footage of an advanced domestically produced weapon they're planning to use during the ground invasion. And they came to dance at a festival of peace, but soon found themselves under attack by violent terrorists. Two survivors of the Nova Festival massacre in Israel tell us their story after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. House speakership once again back to square one. Majority Whip Tom Emmer dropping out of the race just hours after securing a nomination. Former President Trump is accused of boosting his assets based on arbitrary numbers. His ex-attorney Michael Cohen agreed during his testimony today. This in the New York civil fraud case against Trump and his two adult sons. Another Trump-aligned lawyer struck a plea deal in the Georgia RICO case, this time in tears. Attorney Jenna Ellis saying that she relied on false information provided by other lawyers while representing Trump. The White House today warning of the possible consequences of a ceasefire in Gaza. And an 85-year-old former hostage shares her frightening experiences while in Hamas captivity. Israel is planning to use an advanced new weapon ahead of its invasion where soldiers will face the chaos of urban warfare. NTD's Virginia Gibson talks with a former Green Beret who explains how the Iron Sting can help. The Iron Sting, a GPS-guided explosive that hits an exact location, 
the Israeli military says this video shows it hitting a Hamas rocket launcher. Israel-based Elbit Systems has been building the Iron Sting for over a decade. It accurately hits a precise target while preventing collateral damage. The Israeli military plans to use the Iron Sting during their upcoming land invasion. Experts expect a nightmarish scenario in the combat environment. Soldiers will enter a chaotic, claustrophobic city of rubble, tunnels, and hiding spots. They will likely face snipers, weaponized drones, and bombs. It's an absolute nightmare situation. The enemy is always going to have the first shot. Um, so you're you're basically doing a... You're doing reactive fighting as proactive fighting. The enemy is going to know the terrain better than you do, and they probably have the support of the local populace, and you may not. So every back alley could be booby-trapped. Greg Hatcher is a former Green Beret with urban combat experience. He's fought in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. Hatcher says Hamas will likely jam Israel's communications. They may use explosives that can penetrate armor, killing people inside vehicles such as tanks. And Hamas fighters will travel through underground tunnels where satellites can't find them. But the iron sting may help. It's just what Israel needs right now. If you just use a, a mortar in an urban environment, there's going to be collateral damage because a mortar is basically, it's, it's not like a, a sniper rifle, right? It's, it's an area weapon where you want to take out a large building. Hatcher says the iron sting will help with both combat and public perception. Less collateral damage means fewer dead civilians. IDF General Omar Cohen says one military team has eliminated over 100 terrorists so far, aided by the Iron Sting. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. A music festival in the Negev Desert in southern Israel described as celebrating unity and love was the site of some of the worst violence of the Hamas terror attacks. NTD's Daniel Monahan spoke with two of the survivors who made it out. Ila Fakliro got to the Nova Festival around midnight to bartend. At 6.20 in the morning, the sky seemed to fill up with fireworks. Uh, and then I understand it's not fireworks, it's missiles and rockets. And then things start to get a little complicated. Ila jumped in her car and tried to escape, but soon ran into a traffic jam with an ambulance in the road and a wounded policeman. When I look in the ambulance, I see a girl around my age start to scream, I don't feel my leg, I don't feel my leg. And then I saw the police officers. It was a lot of bullets, a lot of bullets all in his stomach, bleeding all over his mouth. A police officer screamed at Ila to run towards a nearby city, but it wasn't long before about 20 terrorists showed up. They start shooting all over the place. They didn't care. How old are you? What is your gender? It just looked like a duck range. Like, if you're alive, you're not going to be alive anymore. I saw a couple of people start falling down, and then I understand it's now or never. I need to run and never look back. So that's what I did. At that point, the first videos with the kidnappings began to arrive. Two of Ila's friends were among those taken hostage, Noah Argamani and Abinatan Or. We walked for five hours, 20 kilometers, without, like, with the poor service, without the police officers, without any military. Um, we're hearing shooting all over the place. Um, missiles start to explode behind us, so we see, like, a huge black clown. Ila says the terrorism Hamas commits has nothing to do with fighting for freedom. Killing innocent people, kidnapping kids, babies, elderly women, People that have been in the Holocaust, 
raping women is not in the name of peace. This is not what brings you free Palestine. The pro-Hamas rallies around the world have horrified her. When Al-Qaeda did the 9-11, nobody stood by them. When ISIS did all the things that ISIS did, nobody stood by them. But if it's Hamas and Israel, everybody cheering and standing behind Hamas, I don't understand why, how it's happening. Because we are Jewish, because we are Israeli. When Tal Neushtai saw the sky full of missiles, he knew straight away that a serious attack was underway. Told to evacuate by police, he and his friends knew they had to be quick with 3,000 people there. We drove as fast as we can. We took a left turn on the highway towards North Israel, heading to Tel Aviv. But they soon saw cars driving back in the opposite direction, the road blocked by terrorists shooting at people. They went to the nearest village, Kibbutz Beri, to hide in one of the houses. The gate was closed. Luckily, that was our first miracle. After that, we realized that uh, Kibbutz Beri has been completely taken over by terrorists. All the houses, all the people that are living in the kibbutz, young kids, babies, old people, women, families, everybody got or slaughtered or raped or kidnapped. No one stayed alive. He and his friends found some concrete cubes to hide from the missiles in. They soon spotted terrorists through a small hole in the concrete. We saw two trucks, Toyota trucks, with six terrorists in the back on each one. Each one to AK-47 in his hands, shooting all over the place, shooting on the cars, shooting on the village, shooting in the air, just shooting without, without even thinking twice. They waited for a while until after the terrorists had passed and took off in the car again. They later learned that other people tried to hide in those same concrete cubes. And terrorists came and slaughtered them completely with everyone that was inside. And so we were very lucky. In the car again, they soon ran into another roadblock. They stopped, wondering if they were Israelis. After 10 seconds, we see guns pointing at us. I was driving, I started doing reverse, and then first shot in my friend's door, second shot in the uh, windshield, reaching all the way back to the rear rear shield, broke it completely. Luckily, no, none of us got injured. They drove as fast as they could, turned off a dirt road, and found an orchard there where they hid under an orange tree for hours, not moving or speaking. We heard terrorists damaging the car, honking, closing the door, breaking the windows. They stole all our stuff. We hear them talking Arabic, and it starts to get closer and closer and closer to us. Luckily for Tal and his friends, the terrorists passed by them. Israeli soldiers eventually found them, gave them water, and took them to a safe house in the closest village. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, it's the start of a new NBA season, yet the defending champs aren't expected to repeat. We'll have where odds makers place the Denver Nuggets. And art-loving New Yorkers gathered at the Lincoln Center over the weekend for Simeon Symphony Orchestra's first show of the year. We hear reactions from audience members after the break.
Welcome back. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with a look at the new NBA season. That's right, Tiff. It was just four months ago that the Denver Nuggets won their first NBA title. Tonight, the NBA season officially starts up, yet the Nuggets aren't favored to repeat as champions. That honor goes to the Boston Celtics, who are listed as 3.8-1 odds to win it all at Caesars Sportsbook. Now, they're followed closely by the Milwaukee Bucks at 4-1 odds, while the Nuggets are actually third. Now, both Boston and Milwaukee retooled their teams in the offseason, with the Bucks acquiring Damian Lillard and the Celtics getting Drew Holiday. Meanwhile, Denver star Nikola Jokic is favorite to win his third MVP award. The seven-footer was listed at 3-1 odds to bring home the hardware, edging out Milwaukee's Giannis Antetokounmpo and Dallas's Luka Doncic. And in the NHL, the league is now reversing its ban on pride tape for use on hockey sticks. The rainbow color tape was used in conjunction with special pride warm-up jerseys during team's annual Pride Night celebrations. This past June, the league had actually banned it after a handful of players refused to participate, some citing their religious beliefs. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, the NBA features a doubleheader to start the season. First, the aforementioned Nuggets will host the LA Lakers while receiving their championship rings. Now, speaking of rings, the late game will feature the Golden State Warriors, who've won four of the last nine NBA titles, hosting the Phoenix Suns. And on the ice, busy night. All 32 teams are in action, highlighted by the defending Stanley Cup champion Vegas Golden Knights, who are off to a 6-0 start. They host the Philadelphia Flyers. And finally, on the baseball diamond, it's Game 7 of the NLCS is a surprise. Arizona Diamondbacks look to upset the Philadelphia Phillies on the road. The winner heads to the World Series. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, back to you. Art-loving New Yorkers gathered at the Lincoln Center on Sunday for Sunyan Symphony Orchestra's first show of the year. After a standing ovation, some audience members described it as a healing experience. Let's take a look. The return of the Shenyang Symphony Orchestra was met with a cheerful and welcoming audience in New York City. It was their first stop to Lincoln Center in four years. It calms my soul and we need that. It's beautiful. Very uplifting and uh, nourishing to the spirit. Orchestra is unbelievable. The composer, you could tell, is very talented. With the sound of a gong ringing through the hall, the orchestra kicked off the show with one of Schering's most acclaimed compositions, Salvation During End Times. The program included original music written by Shenyang Performing Arts' in-house composers, as well as Western classical favorites like Dvorak's From the New World and Finlandia. The orchestra also performed a well-known classical Chinese music piece called The Butterfly Lovers. Shenyang Symphony Orchestra draws inspiration from 5,000 years of Chinese civilization, bringing stories and legends to life. The music emphasized Asian culture, and it has, I felt like the history, so much history of our own lives and of other people's lives were represented in the room. I, I, I saw movies. It sounded like a movie soundtrack. I could just see things going on when I heard the music. It just lights me up, it's so gorgeous. 
The New York-based orchestra combines both Western and Eastern instruments, blending ancient Chinese instruments and melodies into a classical symphony orchestra. Audience members call the performance uplifting. It's very good energy, it's very positive. Uh, it makes you feel good when you're listening to it, and it's uh, like in today's times, it's very nice to have such a positive experience. Understanding that beauty is part of our heart and the essence of every human being is very much a traditional value. And things that elevate the spirit, like this music, uh, awaken us to our conscience and being better people. Shenyu Performing Arts showcases classical Chinese dance, along with original music, aiming to revive traditional Chinese culture before communism. The company brings brand new performances every year. A new season of Shenyu begins in December. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.